The following broadcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as a solicitation. You are listening to Finance in Three Acts, Episode 2, Man Meets Mania. With former careers as options trading floor specialist and hedge fund manager, David's 30 years of investment experience chops through the confusion, dashes past the disinformation, and pummels the pundits. Amidst the mediocrity, you found a rare combination of education, experience, and skepticism. Welcome home. Welcome back to another thrill-packed adventure crammed episode of Finance in Three Acts. And today, I've got three delicious acts for you. Now, since we've been talking about what, in my perception, is a United States Treasury bond bubble, I thought I would make it an interesting uh, an interesting journey into history to see just where these bubbles began. And the first act is going to be the tulip mania of the 1630s. Of course, this was peculiar to Holland. And then someone you've probably never heard of, a very clever man by the name of John Law, who took the opportunity for a bankrupt France to reflate the currency in the, uh, in the wake of Louis XIV, who bankrupted the country, and right across the ocean or the uh, the Atlantic, there, it was Britain's South Sea trading bubble, which uh, even snagged Sir Isaac Newton, the maroon, in around 1720. So, remember Bullwinkle and friends? Are any of you old enough to remember that? I, I love that they would have two titles for each episode, and I thought I thought I would follow in those footsteps here. Our first title is Modern Man Meets Mania, or Money, Maroons, and Math. All right, without further delay, let's launch into the turbid wake of the first three economic bubbles with part one, the Dutch Tulip Mania. Act one. A treasure to the Ottoman Empire of the 16th century, tulips were reported to have made their way to Europe through an emissary in around 1554. Somebody was cultivating them in Holland for medicinal purposes when brigands got into their garden and stole them and thus releasing these things to the public. So there are different ideas here. I mean, how could this this thing grip an otherwise sane people? I mean, this is their golden age. Well, as the Dutch expanded, their wealth is expanding and wealth needs status. And so they turn to these rare bulbs and thus they became the envy of everybody who wanted to emulate the wealthy. Now, this was going along just fine with the regular colored bulbs when somebody stumbled onto this variegation process, which we now know just to be a virus that makes these flowering variegations, but this takes time to make these consistently where it's not a one-off, and this takes six, seven, eight years. So that increase that that's that suppresses the supply. And the next part is the Netherlands are just emancipated from the rule of Spain in the early 17th century, and this is their golden age, right? Everything is going on here. They are leading the world and in virtually every discipline, science, medicine, economics, right? Things like the East India Trading Company and the first stock exchange came from Holland. Well, the other side of that coin is that 
the the plague was sweeping across all of Europe at the same time. And when when you have things like this happening where you don't know that there's going to be a tomorrow, risk becomes flexible. All right, so the Dutch are expanding their empire and trading is a big part of it. Tulips became popular with the merchants, bringing them home for their wives. There's a problem, though. They're only available for a, a short little time of the year in the spring. And when they're flowering, you can't mess with them. That meant the merchants didn't have any supply in the off-season, so they started stockpiling them. And then the demand increased, and they wanted to make sure they got these tulips as soon as they were made, so they created the first futures market. And that basically pays for something today for delivery in the future. And, and that's how it works today. There's a vibrant futures market. And if you're manufacturing wheat, you, you know, you've got a farm, you want to lock in your price. Because in the old days, everyone would go to the market. The first one to get there got the best price. The last one, whatever was left over. So this way, people who use the commodity and people who make the commodity can lock in their prices at any time. Well, the real speculation in this thing took off because of these contracts, right? When you've got a contract, you're no longer buying something, you're no longer using money and paying for something. And then the contracts started taking off and increasing in value and it, they never went down. And so this was psychologically, people didn't really see any risk involved. It was just a matter of, can you get in on this thing and how much capital can you leverage to buy one of these contracts and sell it to somebody else? Because there are fools everywhere in, in 1636. And so these, these really rarely manifested in actual delivery. They were just trading these things. Well, how crazy did it get? Let's look at the currency. The currency is a gilder and a skilled craftsman gets about three of these a week. And that means he gets about 150 a year. Now, tulips are, the, the fancy ones are going for 2,500 gilders. And this is 17 years of a craftsman service. So, you know, in, even in a mania, right? There's a supply and there's a demand. Well, in this case, we, we talked about things impeding the supply, but the demand was ever escalating here. Well, on a, on a plot, we'll look into in, in detail as we go along. You have a line for supply and a line for demand. And where the two cross is what's called the equilibrium price. So if demand is ever increasing here and supply is diminished or very low, then you can see that the equilibrium price is going to continue to move up. Now, ordinary tulips were trafficked among the common man. And yes, they were increasing in price, you know, an average and not so rare bulb might be a year skilled labor, something like that. But the real game was in the high priced, very, very rare speculative, I guess, tulips. And these things reached their peak. I mean, who cares the name? It's a Semper Augustus and this thing's going for over 10,000 guilders. And this is right at the peak of the mania. So that's how far things flew. So... Even if you had a clue at the time that something was not quite right in Denmark, as Shakespeare said, the government stepped in and they prohibited you from selling the contract unless you owned the contract. In other words, you couldn't sell this thing short, which is a mechanism by which overvaluation is curtailed in modern markets, right? Short selling is is easy. It's just as easy to do as purchasing. You, you simply borrow something from someone, sell it to whoever wants to buy it, hoping that the price goes down. You're hoping the price goes down so that when you buy it back, you simply repatriate that item, 
right? And the money is the difference between what you sold it for and what you bought it for. But in this case, the government said, no thanks. Well, prices rose and rose and rose. I guess even though there were tulips, they rose. And in every bubble that you're going to find, there is no plateau period where everyone looks at each other, scratches their head and wonders what they're doing. No. As soon as prices stop rising, they start falling. And as soon as they start falling, that's usually uh, a free fall. Who knows what precipitated this? You know, the best guess is that there was an auction right in 1637 that no buyer showed up for. But, you know, keep in mind that there's a plague taking people out here. And that was it. And those bulbs came crashing down to something that more resembled sanity. The Dutch obviously survived. And back in Ottomanville, they became infatuated with the, the same said tulip right around the 18th century. And uh, in this case, the government stepped in to arrest that bubble unlike our Federal Reserve, <laughs> who facilitates bubbles. And it makes me think, those Ottomans. Is it any wonder they're so comfortable? Act two. Okay, let me preface this act by saying it gets a little busy in here. And that's life. There are some, I've omitted a whole bunch of things which are really non sequitur to understanding the basic premise of what happened here and how this fraud was perpetrated. Just so you can draw some parallels to things that we've talked about in the past and we'll certainly talk about in the future because these are scintillating, right? How the public gets hoodwinked. Oh, wait, we find Great Britain. From the 17th to the 18th century, they just couldn't get enough war. Well, that gets to be expensive. So at around 1710, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, as we call him, his name is Harley, he figures out that there's a whopping 5,000 pounds in the British treasury and a mere 9 million note deficit. A deficit, I might add, which is still being paid down to this day. Of course, the public had no clue that the nation was bankrupt. So the exchequer is looking for ways to float the government. And who else to call upon but a swordsmith? You know, I reveal the name because of its irony. Blunt. I guess he was good with numbers and who knows what else. So he comes up to help the exchequer with a scheme. And this has to do with recently confiscated land from the Irish that the British government has for sale. Well, he would just use his own company to buy the land. But of course, he didn't have that kind of capital. He needed around 200,000 pounds. So he thought of this. He would take shares of his company, worth something, ostensibly, and he would trade them for something that had no value, army debt, that had no real backing. So to anyone who was willing to go for it, but first, he went and he gobbled up all these so he can corner the market because he knew that as soon as he made this announcement of something for nothing, there was gonna be quite a bit of demand. Well, of course, he got all that done and then some, getting the 200,000 needed for the land and an extra 20,000, which he generously loaned the government at the time. Hard to believe that governments are this frivolous. Well, then he had another task. I said, hey man, we've got this lottery which isn't doing so well. Would you come over here and, and fix it? And sure enough, he did his dandy and he raised another 300,000 pounds by guaranteeing that every ticket was a winner. 
every ticket would win at least 10%. However, now we're going to float that debt. The 10% would be paid over the next 10 years. You're right, kind of how their lotteries work now, right? Well, then they had a bigger, uh, a bigger nut to crack, and that was how are they going to keep this country afloat? How are they going to manage this debt? So they came up with this idea of kind of a shell company, a holding company. It was called the South Sea Company. And they figured the South Sea Company would be erected and then it would assume the government's debt. And then it would be paid 6%. And this was attractive to the government officials because the 6% would be much less than they were paying to the public debt holders. Then the company would turn around and use the interest to pay the dividends to their investors. Well, everyone looked at this and said, what? Who knows what this company is going to do? The incentive people needed to exchange their debt, which was a government debt, for a lower dividend from an unknown company. They needed something to prompt them to do that. So the government gave the South Sea Company a monopoly on trading in the South Sea. <laughs> well, that meant South America. And unfortunately, British was, Britain was at war with them. So they had the right to trade with all of South America, but only insofar as the Spanish would let them. Well, oh, they also got a bonus. They had the, the exclusive right to slave trading, the Royal African Company. Well, everybody sees these trade routes as they were opening up in the time as just a, a fountain of gold and they were, their potential is unlimited. Well, not letting this war stand in their way, Harley and Blunt pushed the parliament for a peace settlement. And they achieved it to much of the chagrin of their allies. And the concession was that Spain gave them access to all their ports and slave trading. But the caveat was they would only get one ship per year per port. Well, when this was announced, the people pretty much figured out something's not right here and that the South Sea Company is just laundering money for the debt. Well, to distract the public, they were going to issue another 10 million new shares. And to put this in proportion, 10 million shares represented about 50% of all the shares being traded in Britain. And keep in mind that the South Sea Company hadn't produced a farthing of profit by this point. Well, what do they have to do? They've got to float this debt that Britain had assumed with the lottery now. I mean, they only bought time. Well, there are a bunch of political events that take place in here, but it will do nothing to exemplify the financial shenanigans. Well, what eventually happened was that the South Sea Company excused a few years of debt, owed it by the government of Britain, but the price was they got to the right to issue more shares. And so this was the big deal. They were going to issue shares in direct proportion to the debt. So for instance, if there was a $10 million of debt, they'd issue $10 million of stock. However, what they ended up doing was hyping the value of the stock in advance of the trade, such that they hyped it up to $1.14 or 114 per $100 of debt. And so that means they didn't need all the shares of stock because they inflated the value so that when it came time to make the change, they only used a percentage and kept the extra 14%. Well, they figured if they can get the rest of this conversion, which was around 31 million, then their profits would be astronomical. 
So they started seducing Parliament, who wasn't ready to bite off on this thing, into, into letting them have permission to do this. And they were giving them things like shares of stock, which needed to have no payment and simply had to be paid off when sold. So it's a no-risk transaction, right? Like a stock option you get from a, working for a company. And so the South Sea got the right to convert the debt to shares. Now, as the share prices, they got the right to do it, but they didn't do it yet. Now, Blunt said, this is an opportunity, right, to get the share price up and up and up, right? The higher he raises that share price, the fewer shares he's got to give to the government to buy down the debt, and the more he's going to steal. So he comes up with a bunch of financing schemes. One is 20% down in regular payments every two months. Well, that gives you five times the leverage, like a Ponzi. And we're going to be exploring this in an individual episode, but as long as the price goes up, you can cover the purchase. By the time the debt swap was executed, he had the price up to 530 pounds per share. The price was wavering, so he came up with another idea. He would loan investors up to 3,000 pounds strictly for the purchase of the South Sea Company. The stock kept rising over 600. Now, other merchants out there were seeing the party that was going on with the South Sea Company, and they started issuing and selling their own stock, just like the tech stock bubble. Nothing really changes. It's just the medium and the mechanism that I want to bring to your attention. Well, the government said, we really can't afford this because the money that people are spending in these purchases, we need to support the South Sea Company. So they compelled everyone to have what was known as a royal charter, which they gave immediately to the South Sea Company, but few other companies. And when they did that, the stock shot up to 830, 830 pounds in a week. Well, this isn't free. Between the bribes, annuities, loans, dividends, South Sea Company is getting less and less in, in reserves, right? It's got not enough to pay the new sucker, uh, investors. Well, in the interim, Blunt is made a night, so no one really understands what's going up. The company now has a value of 300 million pounds, or 10 times the debt it's to be exchanged for. Now, conversely, remember that the South Sea Company is owed that 6% from the government, which is equivalent to 60 million pounds. That would make the valuation of the company somewhere in the neighborhood of $100 trillion in today's money. And keep in mind, they haven't a shilling to show for it. Once again, as with tulips, as with every other bubble, once the shares start to fall, they usually continue. However, Blunt was more clever than that. He managed to get another million pounds sold at $1,000 a share. At the same time, of course, he's selling the shares through his own company. Well, the selling schemes taxed what little tiny reserves the South Seas had left. Now the bargain was 10% down and no payments for a year. Keep in mind that you're going to hear an expansion of credit like this in the next bubble. You heard me in the next bubble. Okay, so to keep people incentivized and, and, and snapping at the bit, he now said, you get a 30% dividend, which will move up to 50% in 10 years. Now, I guess they weren't that great at math back then, but apparently this woke them up. Because for this to work out, the South Sea Company, which hasn't made a, a, a farthing, 
would have to earn 15 million pounds a year, which was equivalent to a quarter of the gross domestic product of Britain at the time. Well, you guessed what happened. The stock plummeted from 1,050 pounds a share to about 14 or 15% of that a few weeks later. However, the company survived. Well, when the dust settled, Parliament was not too happy about it, and they came up with the Bubble Act, which basically allowed no more shell companies. To keep in mind for the final act, Britain did not tie the currency to this scheme, right? The Treasury, yes, the currency, no. And so the Republic did not falter. And last but not least, Act Three. Okay, let's set the stage. We have a bankrupt France, which Louis XIV had graciously plundered before his death. There were so few coins in circulation that they couldn't carry out trade. So there was a big recession going on. Well, there was just a boy king, so they put a regent in to make decisions, and they started issuing IOUs to placate the public, which didn't fly. Then they had to devalue the currency. So the government was obligated to pay less to the citizens. Well, now enter our perp, John Law, Scottish financier who had been hanging out in Amsterdam for a few years because he had killed someone in a duel and had escaped a death sentence. Now, this John Law is an interesting, though murky character, a, a math genius. He made his fortune in high-stakes gambling in, you know, in the lofty halls of European nobility because he figured out the probabilities. He'd offer these guys these tantalizing gambles, saying, okay, throw three sixes, and I'll give you a 1,000 to 1 odds, when in actuality the odds were 46,000 to 1. So he was on the lam in Holland because he was uh, escaping a death sentence somehow, for killing someone in a love triangle. It's a Scotsman. Now, Amsterdam was happening at the time, right? They were the center of the world. This was a renaissance happening there. They were leading the world in finance, medicine, everything, investments in banking. And this guy is absorbing all this, fascinated with math. He really enjoys the banking system and learning about this. And he develops his own ideas about economics and finance while on the lamb. So he sees France as a prime recipient of his benevolence. They're on the brink of their third bankruptcy in less than 100 years. He thought, if anyone's going to be receptive to my genius, it's the French. So he cozied up to the crown, and the promise was, we will restore France to her former greatness as an economic and world power and erase the crippling debt. His plan was to create a central bank that would issue shares. These shares would be traded for the crippling debt in a ratio of six to one. Now, this is a lot similar to Blunt, right? And his stock trade. And the debt magically disappeared. It worked. And the people had restored confidence because they had formerly worthless debt, and now they had stock in a new bank. He created money. Okay, let's put this in context. Because my mission is to help you see through the staid euphemisms of modern banking and finance. When you create money to stimulate a system, it is otherwise called quantitative easing. Right? That's inflation. And we discussed this in the last podcast about the yield curve. Now, this measure itself greatly boosted confidence. 
he, he was just getting started, right? What he did was he separated the banknote from evaluation, right? It was no longer redeemable for gold. It was simply a unit of exchange. At the same time, the French were the first to colonize North America, right? This big tract of land, about a third of the Americas we now love, uh, you know, was later the Louisiana Purchase. Law established a company with a monopoly, another, right? On trading with the French colony on the Mississippi shore. And of course, the capital of which was Louis, Louisiana. Again, law gets a exclusive right to trade with this colony. And this is transformed into the company of the West. And it greatly parallels the South Sea Company and its trade monopoly, except that Louisiana did have somewhat of a more promising cargo. The fundamentals were basically there, but law was P.T. Barnum-esque. And he hypes this thing to the moon with untold stories of wealth and paralleled it to the success of the East India Trading Company, which was about to take over the world. I mean, one of their ship's cargo built another new ship. At the time, you know, consider that this is wild and investing in this technology is equivalent to our tech bubble a few years ago. Well, the Company of the West was a state commerce company. You know, it's an edifice of the government. And it, and it acted exactly as it did in the South Sea Company. It would be a source of revenue, and that would take the place of government debt. So you can buy shares with just 15% down, the balance in installments. And as soon as this word got out that there was this option available, a frenzy followed. But that, that isn't the whole story. Now, the stock was standing in place of the government debt, and, and this is what separates us from the South Sea Company, the government had issued five times the currency that was held in reserve. So they issued basically $5 for every dollar of reserves that were in actual physical gold or silver. So my question to you is that other than government currency and notes, what, what assets are in our Federal Reserve System? Well, the company of the West continued to issue shares by the tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands, just like the South Sea Company. And of course, that's dilutive to the first shareholders. Every subsequent batch of stock dilutes the value of their stock. Well, to keep the stock price lofty, law, like Blunt, thought of incentivizing it with dividends. <laughs> and they weren't pedestrian in their measures. He offered a 120% dividend, you know, essentially 10% a month, where it would be otherwise 10% a year at best. Okay, so consider that these shares were purchased with government debt with an inflated currency. So the share price increased 100, then 1,000, and then 3,000%. 1717. Shares started at 500 livres. By August, they were at 5,000, 5,000. And by December of 19, they were at 10,000. Well, what about the engine of this opportunity? Come on, 
there are 800 Europeans in the colony in Mississippi and they're dying at a copious rate. So to increase the population, law took the extraordinary measure. And these guys are creative. You got to give them that. He pardoned prisoners who were willing to both marry a prostitute and take their new bride and emigrate to Louisiana. Yeah, to ensure that they made good on their bargain, they were manacled as they got on board for their uh, honeymoon. Of course, in the end, it remained on an undeveloped swamp. Essentially, John Law became a super uber prime minister. He controlled the entirety of the French economy, the printing press, the monetary system, the central bank. He controlled the Mississippi colony, indirectly controlled the Indian economy. And it's here that was born the phrase millionaire. And guess who was at the very peak? Law. Massive land holdings in cash. He was the richest man in history to date. Let's keep in mind that this was an experiment of born of desperation to reflate France. And although Law understood the relationship right between supply and demand, like increasing the share prices, he would just inflate the currency. And he had absolute control over the currency and the company's shares and, and literally inflated them each in turn. And let's remember Uncle Milton Friedman, my number one economist. Inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomena. And by 1720, as this bubble is fully expanded, the monthly inflation was a whopping 23%. Font trois in that vernacular. Okay, the economy is now out of control and no one really knows what pricked the bubble, right? It's, it's, it's you know, it's the, it's the cow that uh, knocked over the lamp that started the Chicago fire. In this case, we had a prince, Prince de Comp, and he, and the banks were now issuing new shares, right? Further leveraging the, the notes that they had before, free money. And he said, listen, I don't want these new shares. I want some of the old shares. And of course, the bank went wild. And they refused. And he said, all right, well, forget all that nonsense. Let's just have the gold, right? Making them show their wares. Well, word got out that the bank was shuttered, the first bank run, and everyone wanted to get and redeem their shares, right? Panic is, uh, is similar across centuries. Well, law, trying to stem the bleeding, immediately cut the value of the shares from 10,000, which is, of course, still absurd, to 9,000. The shares went into a free fall. The bank used the livre to prop them up. And, of course, printing livre more, the, they went bankrupt anyway. Eventually, both the shares and the currency were worthless. Thus, ending France's first excursion into central banking. Law escapes under the cover of darkness left and never saw his wife and daughter again, died impoverished and nine years later, still decrying the virtue of his programs. Louis XV and Sixteenth lived from hand to mouth. And so the country went from bankruptcy right into revolution. Thank you so much for sharing part of your day with us. 
Tune in next week for another action-packed excursion into finance in three acts. Thanks in advance for your suggestions for future podcasts and your review. Until next time, ciao.